All right. Good morning. Uh, my name is Dustin. I'm new here. Um, and last time when we said we were back, we were just kidding. Uh, but now we're actually back. Um, no, but seriously, thank you so much for, um, man, just, I think we felt uh, very loved um, and cared for over this uh, tough season. As most of you know, our sabbatical was spent um, close to uh, Raquel's dad, uh, just to be with him. And um, to be back two days and have him pass uh, was not what we planned for sure. Uh, but the fact that we had the freedom to um, be with him in his final weeks and months was uh, a huge blessing. Um, and all your messages and your cards and food and gifts have meant a ton to us. And we really have felt so, so loved over this season. So thank you um, just from the bottom of our heart. Uh, hopefully I remember how to do this. So, so what, what I'm just kidding. The real concern is that I don't preach for an hour and a half today. That's, that's the real one. So intercede, stand in the gap for me about that. That would be great. But uh, really I really am happy to be back. And I'm going to preach a standalone message today. A little bit of it comes out of some of the things that I uh, have reflected on over sabbatical. Uh, we're going to take some time at some later date where I'm going to just get a chance to just kind of splurge everything on you about my sabbatical and what we feel like the Lord has kind of done and shown us over uh, this time. But today I'm going to preach out of some of it. Um, and for me to, to have a few months to step back and have sabbatical, it's also meant that I have had the opportunity that we as a family have had the opportunity to step back from some of the trauma <laughs> of the last couple years. And if you have been paying attention at all, we've had like these massive shifts where the tectonic plates under our feet have quite literally and very traumatically and violently shifted on almost every single topic. And we've all noticed. And many of us don't even know what to do with that, whether it's political issues or political polarization on left and right on almost anything, whether it's questions of race and justice and what we should actually be doing in the world or who gets to define what justice is, and then, of course, there's this thing, I don't know if you noticed over the last couple of years, called the pandemic, COVID-19. Whether it's issues around the vaccine or the role of the government or how we should all respond as a global community to this has seen a radical shift of the, the, the ground under our feet, quite literally. And that's not just here in the church as followers of Jesus, or even if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're checking Jesus out in the community of faith. But this has happened globally in culture at large, and even especially in Western culture. We've seen something very major shift, and I don't think we're done. I don't think it's, we're finished seeing some of the rapid changes of the landscape that make up our cultural reality. And take that and couple it with the digital age that we live in. You know that bright glowing thing in front of you all day, every day? And how much that has actually shaped us and changed us. And not only has it curated what we think, but it's also changing how we think. And because for the last four months I was almost entirely off of all social media, all digital content, I saw something come alive in us as a family that is missing in the kind of hustle and bustle of the digital age. Now this is not going to be an Amish anti-tech, anti-interwebs, anti-digital sermon at all. I love my phone. I love my PlayStation. I love the digital age. I love what we get to enjoy in the digital age, but my broader concern is what it's actually doing to me and what it's doing to us. 
I don't need to repeat this, but over the last couple of years, you've heard me kind of teach into this and preach into this. I'll save you some of the data, but experts are calling it a, a, an attention economy. The idea that whoever gets our attention ultimately gets our lives, gets our livelihood, gets our emotions, gets our heart, gets our mind, and ultimately what we give our attention to is the people we become. It's an attention economy. But the shadow side of that is that we're being robbed of our energy and attention going to other things, right? Some of the most important things, some of the most important relationships and experiences of what actually gives us life. And what I've seen and observed in my own heart, first and foremost, so just hear me, I'm preaching out of a conviction of my own heart primarily. And then secondarily, I get to also pastor you to that end, okay? But one of the things that I've observed in scenes and one of the seen and one of the bigger observations that I have definitely seen in our own life as a family is that we are not as aware of the digital age and the impact it's having as we think. We're not. There's things getting absorbed into us by osmosis long before we even know it's happening. And all day, every day, you and I are drinking a steady stream of content, no pun intended, but a constant stream of beliefs and values and feelings. And what's, that, what, what's happening is that constant stream is actually shaping the stories and scripts of our lives. Are you with me on that? It's actually not just, well, it's someone's opinion, but it's actually opinions and algorithms and digital content that's shaping who we actually are. Don't Google it this week, but just the digital algorithms that are shaping us, it is frightening. It's shaping what we believe. It's keeping things away that we want to explore. So we're being pushed into polar things by these algorithms, whether it's right or left on an issue, whether it's conservative or liberal on an issue, whatever it is. But these algorithms are quite literally watching and listening to what you and I are searching for and are about, and it's throwing it into a cloud, and then guess what it's doing? It's curating to you and I what we already want to believe. The confirmation bias and the echo chambers that these algorithms push us into leave us with an inability to critically think through anything. And because of that, an inability to empathize and actually love our neighbors well. Let me use a non-tense and non-contentious example. Vaccines. Vaccines. <laughs> I don't, I don't know, I was on sabbatical. Is that a thing? Like, is that it? Has that been an issue here? Like, it's been an issue everywhere, right? Let me just tell you something. If you search, if most of your searches on the internet are for problems with the vaccine, guess what, more, guess what content you're going to get? More content on problems with the vaccine. If most of your searches on the internet are how the unvaccinated are the problem, the world's biggest crisis right now is the unvaccinated. Guess what content is going to pop up because of the algorithm, how the unvaccinated are the problem. These algorithms are leaving the deck wildly stacked against you. And I'll save you the dystopian nightmare that it creates, because I don't want this to be that today. But it is, it is frightening. And it's not just the what. So hear me, it's not just the what we're researching and looking at and streaming and processing and consuming. It's not just the what. It's how. It's how we are getting access to information and how we get to actually explore the different viewpoints on different things. 
And it is wild what it is doing to our mind, to our heart, to our emotions, and ultimately to our lifestyle. So hear me, one of the biggest crises in the church right now, you think I'm going to say vaccines. One of the biggest issues that I see in the Western church right now is not understanding how stories, scripts, and narratives of our culture are forming and spiritually deforming us. It's forming and deforming our spiritual formation. And long before we even come to scripture, come to Christian community, come to even consider issues of faith, we're already formed, wildly formed. Our values are formed, our narratives are formed, our worldviews are formed. What we should think about romance and sexuality and money and materialism and, and justice and, and issues of our, of our social fabric, all of those things are already formed long before we even come and sit down with one another to have a face-to-face conversation or open up our Bible. We need to be far more honest with ourselves about the role that the digital age is playing in our spiritual formation. And when I say spiritual, don't hear like ethereal Christianese floating in the air. I mean who you are. The very soul, your inner woman and your inner man is being radically deformed by how we live our lives and the attention that we give to these things. So that's bad news. The good news is I see an amazing opportunity for the church. And we just prayed an intercessory prayer for the church to stand in the gap. To actually not just be swept downstream with culture. And my, my fear is that so many of us are sitting in our flamingo floaties in the lazy river just floating downstream with culture. Not aware at all that it is radically deforming us in the most important parts of our life. We have a huge opportunity to step into a culture of outrage and fear and not be afraid and outraged. Amen? But that can't happen if our rhythms, our habits, our attention is going the same way as everyone else. It's impossible unless we recognize and detach and step out of the cultural stream. I do think that pastorally what I've seen is a lot of open browsers and a lot of closed Bibles. And I've had lots of conversations over the last couple of years about any issue, just pick it. It doesn't matter what it is. Very seldom is Jesus in the conversation. Very seldom is the great commission and the great commandment brought up. It's, my, it's wanting my opinion or somebody else's opinion on whatever YouTube thing or whatever article was read or what data graph. I, don't, I hate graphs, so like, don't send me graphs. I barely got out of math in grade 10, all right? Like, that's why I do this. Okay, like, what, look at this pie graph. I'm like, I don't, I'm already dizzy. I don't even know what to say about this pie graph. Open browsers and closed Bibles do not lead to a people being formed by a different worldview and value and ethic and narrative. It means that we're going to be simultaneously shaped by those narratives and frustrated why we're not more different. Amen? And my concern pastorally is that we are drifting downstream with culture wondering why we're not experiencing joy. Deeper affection for Christ more of God's power in our lives, or affecting true change where it matters most. Anybody there? I'm frustrated with that tension. 
But you in your most honest moments and me in my most honest moments, we have to be very honest. Because if we think that tens of hours, now I'm not even going to give you the data because I hate pie graphs, right? But if we think that tens of hours a week spent consuming and streaming and scrolling can be counteracted with a couple awkward prayers, hearing me yell at you for 45 minutes or an hour, and singing a few songs is going to counterform us, church, we are fooling ourselves. We are fooling ourselves. So let me pinpoint the frustration for you. That's why you're not experiencing some of the things that your deepest desire is to experience, right? Amen? As followers of Jesus, like, I want, a, I want a deeper affection for Christ. I want to be more healthy spiritually. I want to see my, my neighborhood changed by the gospel. That's our deepest desire. But our strongest desire is to sit in our flamingo floaties and just float downstream with culture. So we end up with a war of the flesh, a deep like war and conflict inside of us as we don't really know how to respond to that. Uh, Dallas Willard, the great like giant who wrote on spiritual formation, he said, we cannot b- behave on the spot as Jesus did and taught if in the rest of our life we live like everybody else does. Like that sounds like such a reasonable thing to say, doesn't it? It's just kind of like, oh, Dallas, oh, you're a genius, Dallas Willard. Thank you for writing all these books. It's like, no, no. Like that is literally just like you reap what you sow. Our intake determines our output. Like this is just life. And until we're honest with what our intake actually looks like and where our attention is going, we will not be able to grow more healthy. We won't. So I hope that today, I'm going to preach now, but (laughs) I'm glad to be back. But I hope that today is convicting, but so encouraging. Because for four months, I just got to see something happen in my soul that I would not have been able to see happen. Now, here's my challenge is to help you be able and help myself be able and lead my family in the direction of experiencing that day to day to day. We don't, we don't all have the luxury of a four-month sabbatical, amen? Like, Dustin, this sounds great for you, but not for me, right? We don't all have that privilege. I did, and my, my job now is to come back vocationally and where you are tired, where you are spiritually being deformed, show you better, healthier rhythms that we can actually move towards so that we can be effective, all right? So, how you spend your attention and your time shows you the dominant story that you're living into. What and who you live for is determined by the attention that you give to it. Your intake does determine your outlook and your output. And if there's one thing you gotta walk away with today, is that this week, and I mean, I mean practically, now listen, so often we sing songs, it's like, I, I bow, I bow to you, Lord. We don't, we're not bowing. Oh, I sing, I sing to you a song for the song in itself is not what you require. We just sung that, and some of us aren't singing. We just prayed a prayer of intercession and we stood in the gap. We stood up. Why? Because we're embodying it in our body. You know that? Like, like we're actually practicing this. We need to practice this. So don't just take what, don't, don't take this as an interest. That was an interesting topic today by Pastor Dustin. Like that we're going to practice this stuff, family. All right? We're going to go into community. We're going to practice this. You with me on that? That's not a rebuke. That's just me being excited. Amen? We need to pay more attention where our attention is. This week, you need to pay more attention where your attention is. There's a saying that I grew up hearing over and over again. It was frustrating until I was an adult, especially a dad. But it was how you spend your a day is how you spend your life. Family, if that is true, our life is abysmal. 
because the amount of energy and attention that goes to nonsense every day, if a day makes up our life, which it does because it's a drop in the bucket of life, we're in trouble, amen? How we spend and steward a day, how we steward 24 hours is how we steward 60, 70, 80, 90 years that we have on planet Earth. And so it does start right here in your lap, microcosm level, because that is going to determine your entire life at the macro level, okay? Every single day you are forming and reinforcing habits, good and bad ones. And in a very real sense, and behavioral psychologists and biology backs all of this up with our dopamine kick culture that we're in right now, is that in a real sense, what you give your attention to is the person that you are becoming. And family, this also applies to the sources of news. And frankly, I think news is dead. Are you with me on that? No such thing as news anymore. It's either already highly right-leaning right or left-leaning, and then we're like, what are we? everyone's in the middle going like, <laughs> I know you missed all of these motions. News is dead. Journalism is dead. Unless you're Malcolm Gladwell, baby. Listen to more Malcolm Gladwell and read more Malcolm Gladwell books, all right? If you don't know who he is, repent. Google him this week. But the same, same goes for content, right? Same goes for news and influencers and which cultural voices we give authority in our life. We're like, oh, they're, they're the ones who know about this. They're going to tell me. And what's crazy is that we've simultaneously seen more voices claim to be experts on things and the death of expertise at the exact same time. Everyone's an expert on vaccines now. Everyone was an expert on how to deal with the African-American justice issue after George Floyd. Everyone's an expert on every single topic because they can hit record and get on YouTube, even if everything they say is not just bearing false witness, but it's just lies. And in an age where we have the death of expertise and a, mon a monopoly on even what counts as news and credibility, the leaders that we follow and retweet and listen to are forming who you are. And that's from a guy who stands here and tries to form who you are. <laughs> But what we're formed by matters. So, now I'm going to preach. Let's go Ephesians 4. There are so many passages I had to wrestle with over the last couple of weeks about how to even get into this with us. There are so many examples, and I'm just, by God's grace, I chose one. All right? Ephesians 4. Now, if you know anything about Ephesians, we've spent some time there in the last couple of years. We did a series through it. Go back and listen. The, the city of Ephesus was a metropolis similar to ours. Where it had this high spirituality, you know, like it's like, oh, I can do yoga and like worship at the altar with Oprah. But then also, yeah, religion's dumb and look how smart we are, okay? So like Ephesus had the biggest library in the world and the most temples at the same time to all sorts of gods, okay? So that was Ephesus. This is our city. This, this beautiful diversity, but also leads to thought diversity and opinions and perspectives. And that's who Paul is talking to in this passage. And here's who he's talking to because he, in these verses in particular. He's talking to those who have already put their faith in Christ. So if you're not on that side already, today's an invitation for you to experience exactly what Paul's going to talk about. That you would actually respond to this invitation, okay? But here's he's going to speak to believers already and call out something in their lives that's not quite jiving with their identity in Christ. And watch what he says. No longer live like the Gentiles do. Okay, who's he talking to? Who's in Ephesus? 
Gentiles. So he's talking to Gentiles saying, don't live like everybody else. Do not sit in your pink flamingo floaty and just cruise down the stream, okay? Do not live like Gentiles do. Stop doing that. In the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened. They're blind in their understanding. They are excluded from the life of God. Why? Because they don't want anything to do with that, right? Because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their own hearts. They become callous. A hardened heart. And they've given themselves over, that's key, given themselves over to sensuality, greedy, to practice, keyword, every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more and more. That desire for more and more and more at the end was a uh, Dustin's New International Version translation. You're not going to find that. That's the beauty of being able to sit with Greek and being like, how will Reach Montreal need to hear this? There's a lot in there, but here's what's really, really important. That Paul is speaking to Gentiles and telling them in the midst of a culture that lives for different things and about different things that they need to stop living like them. And he goes on to define Gentiles and their lifestyle and that they just live for immediate gratification, they live for entertainment, and they live for excess. That key word of live, don't live like them anymore, reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is just like, don't be like them anymore. And it's like, wow, that sounds very, very helpful, right? Don't walk like them. Don't talk like them. Don't live like them, but live among them. And here's the challenge is that we're supposed to live so radically different qualitatively with our rhythms and our content and our behaviors and our habits. But where? Not in some monastery somewhere, right? But smack dab in the middle of culture. That we're supposed to live as like monastic missionaries, so strange, so bizarre. It's like, you guys think that about sex? You guys do what with your money? Wait, wait, wait. No, in a culture that is so radically um, flippant with their bodies and greedy with their money, the kingdom of God looks like we're flippant with our money because we're so generous and we're kind of greedy with our body. That's strange. It's like, you're weird. It's like, yeah, we are. Do you want to talk about it? But there's something about walking differently and living differently because we have a different narrative altogether. We have a different story we're living into, amen? We have a different identity. We have a different value system. We have a different future. And it's when we understand that and don't get deformed by the alternative competing narratives and stories and scripts that we can actually understand the beauty of life flourishing by walking and living differently. So church, listen, you cannot live the same as everybody else around you and expect yourself to be different. You can't. You're like, oh, why am I not growing in my affection for the word of God? It's like, well, I don't know. How many Netflix series do you have to binge before you're like, hmm, maybe that is deadening my heart towards the things of God. It's like Ted Lasso is great, but like too much Ted Lasso is not great. You with me on that? I think we can learn some things from Ted Lasso. He's just so optimistic and happy all the time. It's amazing. If you haven't watched it, don't email me. It's okay. Following Jesus comes from a clear departure from the way that everybody else lives who don't know Jesus, church. And what this means for us is that you can't follow Jesus and barely know. And I think some of the power that is lacking from our lives is because we're not living any differently than anybody else anyway. But we sprinkle a bit of Jesus on, well, I said a prayer, like I go to church, my parents are Christians, and it's like, okay, okay. 
But like if, our, if our lives are not actually transformed by the power of God, it's not going to show up and, and we're not going to experience the power of God. Paul tells where this leads, right? So he says, if you, if you, if you don't stop living like everybody else, here's what it looks like, right? And he says that they're darkened. And that word there is like aimless, it's directionless. That is our culture. I don't even know what I'm supposed to be doing or what I should be doing. So, Ted Lasso? You know, like, so we just fill it, right? Like we get this vacuum of like question marks and we don't even know what. It's like, what should we even be living for? And here's what's crazy. Church, listen. The secular project of remove God from the center is failing. The progressive narrative of just be true to yourself, live your truth, do you. Uh, I mean, we're just, again, highly evolved animals with time and chance on our side. And, you know, sexuality is just two, like, bodies hitting each other. And, like, that liberal progressive narrative is failing everyone everywhere. That's why we're so miserable. Aimless, darkened, directionless. And then he also says futile minds, useless. And I would just say, man, we don't even know how to think anymore. Because we're just told what to think. We just consume. We listen to one YouTube video and go, oh, I guess so. Or we become experts in research because we read Wikipedia. Like, I'm a doctoral student. I know what research looks like, and that's not it, baby. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then he says, a hardened heart. And this one's probably the most frightening, I think. And the word there in Greek is marble, like marble heart. Nothing gets in there. No pores, there's no pores left in it for anything to seep in. It is impenetrable. It's, it's calloused, it's numb, it's insensitive, it's desensitized. I read some studies from MIT this week, and it says that the increased time on social media shows a direct correlation to a loss of empathy. Why? Well, because we're, by this content and this consumption, we're told that the world that exists in our head and in us is the same as the outside world. And church, it's not. The outside world is, becomes less real than the world in our head. <laughs> That's not it at all. Especially for us as believers because we have a God who, because of his empathy, he actually incarnated himself in our reality. That we'd be a church that is not apathetic, numb, or desensitized. That we just don't feel for God. We don't feel compassion for others. We don't have a conviction to grow. We don't feel broken by injustice or our own sin. We're not like urged or spurned to obedience. We're just kind of, I don't, yeah, I smiled at my neighbors. Howdy, neighbor. It's like, thanks, Ned Flanders. That's not going to lead to mission, right? And then, let's keep going because it's going to get long, baby. In verse 19, we see that he says they've given themselves over to this lifestyle. Okay, that, 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 that's worship language, right? That's like a sacrifice. I'm laying my life down, giving myself over to anything. And here's what's really interesting is, again, we've like over-spiritualized stuff like this, but every single person on the planet worships. We give our life to some end to some telos, some future reality that we think is going to work itself back if we just give our life over to it. So it can come up in all sorts of ways. Career excellence, you know, our family, I'm going to be a perfect dad. I'm going to, like, whatever, good things, right? Giving themselves over to good things. Now, don't hear Paul or Scripture ever coming at desire and delight. Desire is not bad in and of itself. And I think that's the mistake that some of the ancient movements of monasticism made in the past was that desire itself, the flesh is bad, spirit good, right? And, and as Christians, a little bit of that residue still left of like, desire bad, God kill joy, 
must kill joy. You know, you're just like, what? I don't know. Like, I see a lot of feasting and celebration and parties. Like, like if you don't like parties and you don't enjoy great food, heaven is going to be really bad for you. Like, this, this baby ends with the marriage supper of the lamb. And there's going to be delicious food forever. Why? Because it's good. I mean, gluttony isn't bad because food's bad. Gluttony's bad because we overuse food. Amen? Rape and sexual abuse and the pornification of our culture is not bad because sex is bad. It's bad because it's an abuse of sex. So we have to be careful not to kind of get swept away in this like Gnostic version of like spirit good, flesh bad, right? Like, and then you're just going to be miserable anyway, but for a different reason. Amen? But everybody gives their life over to something and some end. And he calls it sensuality. And what's amazing about this word is that it means unrestraint. It means no self-control. Anybody? Anybody overcome by things this week? Oh, just one more episode. <laughs> right? Anybody overcome by anything this week? That's like, man, that, that actually has some power over me. And I know we use therapeutic language like addiction. The Bible often uses slavery. It uses slavery. And you're not just, you know, an addict to alcohol. You're a slave to the bottle. Right? You're not just like an, an, an addict for, you know, self-esteemism or people to affirm you. You're actually a slave to other people's opinions to validate you. And you just go down the list of the things that we kind of say, well, we're addicted to this. It's like, oh, I'm not like addicted, like addict, you're addicted to social media. It's like, well, I don't know. Maybe you're a slave to whatever this is. Entertainment or self or comfort or therapeutic, you know, entertainment, whatever it is. And that's what this word means. It's unrestrained. It's a continual desire for more. That we just live life making decisions based on if they feel good and we want it. Does that sound familiar? Because that's the sermon of our culture. Feels good? Do it. You want it? Get it. After all, you can be all you want, you can be who you are, nothing else matters outside of you because you are your truth. Empower yourself, more self-help, more self-empowerment, more self-actualization. If you want it and you feel like it, get it, do it. That's it. That's the sermon of the culture. And it comes through all sorts of ways. Not because it's right or good or virtuous or holy or that it benefits someone else. It's about me. Do I, do I want it? Does it feel good? And it's left us in a big, big conundrum, especially anybody under 35. We have no idea what in the world to do with ourselves. I'm over 35, by the way. That was like a collective we ourselves. <laughs> I'm almost 40. It's crazy. I've always had the haircut for it, but anyway. This Greek word for desire and lust means that it's actually lust is an oversized, a supersized desire for something good. That's what lust means. So it's a good thing, but it's like this supersized desire for it. That's a bad thing, right? One expert I saw this week on addiction defined addiction as desire, use, repeat. If that's the definition of addiction, we're in trouble. Desire, use, repeat. Desire, use, repeat. Desire, use, repeat. Are you still watching this? Yes. Like Netflix has an algorithm to try to knock us out of it. Are you seriously still here? Like, yes, yes, I am. <laughs> uh, no, right? Like, has anyone ever done that? Like, no, I'm not. Not, not often, right? It's like, yeah, 
yeah, and I'm going to stay here longer just because you said that, right? But when you just go back to a good biblical theology, lust, an oversized desire for a good thing is what leads us to sin. That's what sin is. That sin is actually saying that there's something that's not God that's ultimately going to give me what only God can. That's what it is. That's what sin is. Sin always overpromises and underdelivers. Psychologists are calling it the hedonist dilemma today. That we have this pleasure uh, feedback loop that we're stuck in, this dopamine kick culture. And what happens is you get that dopamine kick and you like it and it feels good and you like watching it and it's entertaining, but then it creates like literally a neural pathway in your brain and it just gets bigger every single time. Every single time. So every single time Netflix asks you that, that dopamine pathway is wider. And it's like, yes, I'm going to fill it with more. Right? Or whatever it is. Fill in your chosen entertainment or digital content. And this is our culture today, that we are overwhelmed by the immediate gratification and entertainment of every kind, that it's literally killing us. A lot of the mental unwellness and the erosion of our humanity is happening because we don't know what to do with the digital age. And that's not a Christian perspective, that's just the perspective. G.K. Chesterton in the 1800s said that meaningless doesn't come from being weary of pain. Meaningless comes from growing weary of pleasure. That was the 1800s. He was already seeing that. That there was this kind of tick out of the enlightenment towards entertainment. That we would live not based on what's right and good and true and virtuous, but what what feels good and what is entertaining. And Paul does this back in Ephesians 2 a little bit and he unpacks it more, but he kind of just says like, we once lived like that, talking to followers of Jesus. We lived like this. We walked like this. According to the desires of our flesh, Doing whatever the body and mind said. And if we're honest, that's, that's a lot of our daily life. Just kind of, just according to the flesh. When you hear flesh, don't, don't think like, again, like bad immediately. It can mean lots of stuff. It can mean your physical body. It can mean your ethnicity. In scripture, sometimes it's used for ethnicity. Your ethnos. But the key term flesh is used to say like the, this animal brain. This animal self. This this passion of your flesh that would just say do what your body and mind say because that is what's going to make you happy and church this is the sermon of our culture everywhere the heart wants what it wants follow your heart do you live your truth speak your truth be true to yourself by the way does anyone know where be true to yourself comes from shakespeare's hamlet that's where it comes from so you're like going back to like grade 10 Poetry, you're like, no, no, but I I ignored all of that. You're like, I know. It comes from Shakespeare's Hamlet. Do you know who says it in the play? Polonius. Guess who he is? The fool. Our entire culture has taken Shakespeare's criticism of a lifestyle and made it our lifestyle. So no wonder we're struggling. No wonder we're not growing in contentment. I mean, we've got a lot of dopamine and happiness for the moment, but we're not growing in contentment. We're not growing in virtue. We're not growing in any of these things. We're devolving, actually, out of virtue and value and goodness because we've taken something completely out of context and said, just be true to yourself. There's a bigger conversation to be had there about how do we define humanity and who we are, but we'll save that. John Mark Comer, one of my favorite authors on this topic, he's a pastor in, in Portland. He says this, it'll be up there. The widespread wisdom of the day is to follow our desires, not crucify them. But in reality, be true to yourself is some of the worst advice anybody could ever give you. Here's why. 
Giving in to the desires of our flesh does not lead us to freedom in life, as many people assume, but instead to slavery, and in the worst case scenario, addiction, listen to this, which is a kind of prolonged suicide by pleasure. That we're actually seeing an erosion of what truly is beautiful and good and right because we're choosing what feels good and to be true to ourselves, and pleasure and entertainment. And now Paul turns the corner. So he doesn't just leave us with the bad news. He turns the corner. Verse 20 through 24, watch what he says, Ephesians 4. But that's not the way that you learned Christ. He's like, all right, so remember all that stuff that you guys were, you know, I'm telling you, stop living like that. But that's not how you learned Christ. So here's what we got to do. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, pause. Talking to believers, okay? So as the church, we have to stop looking at the world, doing what the world's doing, and expect them to live like they know and love Christ. And I think in the kind of the culture wars that we've seen over the last couple of years, we've seen that crop up often. Just like, mm, the government, mm. or oh, that community is doing that with sex. It's like, yeah, but but we just we just heard about the darkness and the futility and how they live and why they live. That's the natural outcome of living like that. So how do we actually go in and preserve and be salt and light where things are decaying and where darkness is happening, right? So again, this is Paul putting it back in our life. We can shake our fist at the culture all we want. I'm like, mm, leave it to Beaver. That was the golden age. I can't believe we've come so far from there. Ah. Okay. You can shake your fist all you want, but they don't love Jesus. They don't know Jesus. They're not full of the spirit of Christ. They don't care about the kingdom because they're building their own. It's a sidebar. As the truth is in Jesus, so to put off your old self, put it off, take it off, take off that old self, which belongs to your former way of life. And it's corrupt through deceitful, say it. Nope, okay, deceitful, yeah. And to be renewed, made new. There's something that can happen to make us new, give us new desires in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God to be image bearers in true righteousness and holiness. True rightness, goodness, what is true and beautiful and right and, and amazing and holiness, meaning separate, like God, but simultaneously in culture. Now, here's the key of this verse, then we'll apply a couple things and we're done, okay? Notice that Paul turns the corner and says, but that's not what you learned. That's not what you know. That's not what the sermons that you listened to on YouTube told you. He says, that's not the way you learned what? Christ. He doesn't give them a formula with new information. He doesn't, give them, he doesn't give them principles or a better theology. He gives them a person. He gives them Christ himself. So it's not about like just replacing it with information. So that's what I need. I need more Bible study classes so I stop loving Netflix. It's like, baby, that's not going to work. What you do need, though, is a direct encounter with the person and work of Christ. Because he's the one that shows us a renewed self. He is the renewed self. He's what we get to look forward to in the future resurrection. Jesus doesn't just offer us methods for doing life better and we sprinkle it on top. He offers us himself. He offers us his very life. He offers us himself being the new master, saying don't give yourself to those things. Don't give your life over to those things. Give your life to me. And did you notice how we experience this? How do we actually get at this? Well, we put off our old self and we put on the new self. The new life that, that's described here is for those who let go of their old life. And Jesus' invitation is to crucify yourself. Not some like sadomasochistic way, 
but the idea of denying yourself. Crucifying, meaning say no to what you want sometimes. Like anybody this week was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say no to myself every time I want something this week. That is going to lead to happiness. Of course not. Everything within us says it's the opposite. Only say yes to yourself. Only say yes to what you want. Only say yes to what you feel. And that will lead to happiness. And what we're seeing is that is not working, church. It's not working for our culture, and it's not working for us. We need to deny ourselves that we actually deny ourselves what we want sometimes. That there's something we feel like doing and we actually say no. Isn't that revolutionary? We're like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this instead. And the promise here is that if you start to do that, you take off that old self, you deny it and crucify it, then you will start to experience life more fully. That's an amazing promise. And I'm not saying this is a formula. Like, so don't email me midweek, but I tried it for three days, okay? This is not a formula for like your best life now, but this is a promise. It's a promise. Not a formula, but a promise. And promises are way better than formulas. You know why? Because formulas rely on us doing it in our own effort. Promises rely on God saying it and, and promising to do it in us. Now, why do we have to put off this old self? Well, because it's full of deceitful desires. You, you yourself lie to yourself about what makes you happy. That's literally the lie from the garden. That is the first page of this story. Is that the lie in the garden is, think for yourself, live your life, do what makes you happy. God isn't for you. God is not good. God's not even real. He's a killjoy if he is real, and you know best. That is literally Genesis. You with me on that? And the hiss from the garden, the hiss is still after your heart and mine. And it is still the only sermon that culture knows because they don't know the God of the Bible. So, the paradox here is that it's when we don't buy into the cultural sermon that life is about you that we actually end up more happy. Crazy. Very paradoxical. But this is the upside down kingdom. This is the gospel. John Mark Comer, one more time, it'll be up here, says this. The wise, so against the fool, over and against the fool, right? The wise recognize that pleasure is not the same thing as happiness. Did you hear that? Pleasure is not the same thing as happiness. Pleasure is about dopamine. Happiness is about serotonin. All you chemistry people are like, this sermon's preaching, baby. All you biology nerds are like, mm, praise God, yes, Lord, serotonin. Ple <laughs> We're almost done. Pleasure is about the next hit to feel good in the moment. Happiness is about contentment over the long haul. A sense that my life is rich and satisfying as it is. Pleasure is about want, but happiness is about freedom from want. So how do we practice this? What does this look like? Here's the curveball. This sermon is actually about fasting. <laughs> this is how we practice it. Fasting is how we practice this putting off. If the downstream of our culture church is indulgence, then the upstream of this, this counterformation that we need is restraint. It's self-control. It's saying no. The Bible calls this fasting. And I will say that it is the most underused and undertaught practice today, period. Hundreds of years of Christian history is full of the church historically fasting twice a week together. Wednesdays and Fridays. That was normal. Until in the 1800s, it just started petering off. And guess what happened on the graph? As fasting started to peter off, guess what rose? Materialism, wealth, and entertainment. Historically, when you look, and I love that we read a prayer today. 
Because we got to learn from saints of the past in order to move forward. We, I know we think we're super progressive and we're just going to reinvent the whole thing. It's like, baby, there's some ancient wisdom we need today and fasting is one of them. But it's not a surprise. I mean, they, they fasted twice a week. Most of us have never fasted twice this year. Some of you have not fi- fasted twice in your life. Unless it's intermittent fasting or a juice fast because you wanted abs. So culture's like taking fasting from us and they're better at it than we are because they want to get on their Peloton and get their abs and they're like, intermittent juice fast, baby. I'm on like day three. Look at my abs. <laughs> I promise we're going to wrap up. Okay, let's go. This is going to start going off the rails. All right. But this is not surprising. It shouldn't be surprising. This is not to criticize us, okay, as the church. It's not surprising that we don't fast and we don't make it a priority. When we binge a whole series of Netflix without a second thought, we spend more money on eating out in the West than any other part of the world. Like, like a, the story of indulgement. The sermon of indulgement, indulgence is everywhere. So of course we wouldn't fast. It doesn't make any earthly sense to us. John Wesley in the 1700s said, I fear there are now thousands who are following a bad example. So the bad example already started in the 1700s, right? They have entirely left off fasting. Who are so far, the church is so far from fasting twice a week that they do not even fast twice a month. The person who never fasts is no more on the way to heaven than the person who never prays. And whether you agree with him on that or not, that is still a worthwhile criticism. Because we rarely hear about fasting in our culture, unless it is a juice fast or for abs. But it's everywhere in scripture, church. It's everywhere. It's mentioned more than baptism. We make a big deal of baptism. It's like, yeah, baptism, you're a Jesus follower now. It's like, yeah, but but fasting's mentioned way more than than baptism. That's convicting for us Baptists, amen? In the Sermon on the Mount, this is wild. I sat with the Sermon on the Mount this week. The three core practices of followers of Jesus that Jesus outlines in the Sermon on the Mount is he says, when you pray, when you fast, and when you give. That the people of God are supposed to be known by how we pray, how we fast, and how we give. We are not known in culture for any of those three things. So let's define fasting, and then I'll give you a couple practicals, and we'll, then we're going to feast, because we have communion, and then a barbecue. All right, good. So maybe your fast doesn't start today, Okay. Simply, simply, fasting is refraining from food for a spiritual purpose. Refraining from food for a spiritual purpose. Now, some of you are going to be like, yeah, but you can fast from other things too, right? But you don't. <laughs> okay? But, but really, really, here, fasting is refraining from food for a spiritual purpose. You can fast from other stuff. We'll get there in a sec. But what, it, what fasting does with food in particular is that it puts a pause on what our body wants and needs so that we can be reminded of higher needs. We can actually reflect well on higher needs. A shift from dependence upon food, actual food, and our physical sustenance to dependence on God. That's the shift in fasting. That's what happens at our soul level when we fast. Fasting is how we practice self-denial. It trains our body, and by extension, our mind and our emotions to, to not get what it wants. Fasting trains you to not get what you want. How often do you say no to what you want? Including what you stream and what you consume. Have you even noticed? Because I would say that although this is very strange today, that that, that going without something today seems so radical because we're just given over 
to doing what feels good and whatever we want, we just say yes to. So choosing to go without something in a supersized world of materialism is so countercultural, family. It's so countercultural. It's very radical. Alvin Plantinga, who's a genius philosopher, said, in our culture, the self exists to be explored, indulged, and expressed, not disciplined or restrained. Imagine what the testimony the church would have if we operated in discipline and restraint. Don't walk like Gentiles do. Don't live unrestrained, but live lives of restraint, healthy restraint and self-control. Fasting helps us train ourselves to do that. John Tyson is a pastor in Manhattan. He literally lives a block from Hell's Kitchen. Any of you foodies know anything about Hell's Kitchen? It's like one of the best places for food. He was meeting with a pastor once in the persecuted world, and he asked him what he thought about the American church. And the pastor said, quote, there's so much food and so little power. In his book, Beautiful Resistance, John Tyson says this, most of our culture is not engaged in a nuanced evaluation of desire. Okay, so just hear me. Gentiles walking around, non-believers aren't sitting going like, is this a healthy use of my time and energy? They're not even asking those questions. It's not natural to ask those questions, right? They're not in a nuanced evaluation of desire. Instead, a culture is driven by two questions. How do I feel and what do I want? These are the mechanisms that drive 21st century civilization. Fasting, hear this, is one of God's great tools for reorienting our longings away from the flesh and back toward God. All of us have deeply engraved patterns, dopamine reward mechanisms, and neural pathways centered around a need for physical satisfaction. Fasting breaks these default connections and reorients us towards a greater food, intimacy with and enjoyment of God. Beautifully put. And I think he's exactly right. Fasting is how we practice the freedom that already belongs to us in Christ. Fasting is how we starve the flesh and feed the spirit. That we would actually starve the flesh to empty it of its power over us and experience more power in the process. So hear me, although we can fast from other stuff and should, there is a direct connection between our ability to tame our physical appetites for food and our ability to tame our other desires, our appetites, and our tics towards pleasure. If you find yourself stuck in a feedback loop of any kind, given over to whatever behavior or addiction that you have, I promise you, because Christ promises us, that if you begin to weave fasting into the rhythm of your life as a follower of Jesus, you will start to see the bondage to those other things released in your life. You will. Now, fasting is not the same as restraint and abstaining from other things, but we will never grow in restraint in other areas of our life if we don't actually practice real life fasting. All right, so three practicals and then we'll pray. Practical, here we go. Jesus never commands you to fast. So now you can be freed from the legalism of that, okay? So you don't walk out of here grumpy waiting to get hangry for Jesus, all right? Jesus never commands, but he does say when you fast, which means what? He assumes we do <laughs> because the people of God always have. Right, So he assumes that we do. He doesn't list how long you should, what you should and shouldn't do. Again, there's a lot of liberty and freedom in the Christian life, amen? 
It's like, well, we, like, we actually have to like, figure that out for ourselves sometimes and in community with others. Like, hey, brother, hey, sister, how do, you, how do you approach fasting? It's like, oh, I haven't until this week. Do you want to fast together? It's like, yeah, let's do that, right? Like, let's figure this out as we go. So there's freedom there. But he does assume it's central in our lives. And then he promises power when we keep it central to our life, which is just so beautiful, right? Whereas we want like self-help therapeutic quick fixes to things, Jesus is like, oh, no, no, no. Get away from therapeutic quick fixes and you'll have real power. It's amazing. So first, start small. But start. Like, like this week, all right? So practice it. Start this week. Pick a day. Pick a meal. Start with a meal. Watch how miserable you are. Pick one meal and watch how humbled you are by how awful of a person you are. The thoughts you start to have... The anger and bitterness that rises out of your belly is incredible. Okay, no, but seriously, start small. In the Bible, there's one-day fasts, there's three-day fasts, there's seven-day fasts, there's partial fasts, there's full fasts, there's all sorts of stuff. Now, I don't recommend the full fast, like a Jesus 40-day fast, because we would need medical attention, amen? It's a little bit different. I think there's ways that you can do 40-day fasts, but still keep your body alive. (laughs) But Jesus was the God-man, so we'll leave that one for him, Okay? But there's all sorts of diversity in fasting in scripture. But this week, your homework is just to set a day, choose a meal, and replace it. Replace it with attention and energy going elsewhere. Replace it with prayer. Replace it with journaling. Replace it with going for a walk and just reflecting in silence. Uh, Replace it by reflecting on a habit that you want to break by operating in restraint and fasting. And journal it out. And write it out. And write your prayer down. Like, whatever just jazzes you up with Jesus juice. Like, do that while you're fasting, okay? That's your homework. Secondly, in your city group, make this a priority to check in on each other on. How's it going? Have you started yet? Maybe we actually break our fast together when we meet tonight with a meal. And then we share while we're feasting and enjoying this beautiful meal because we're starving which, by the way, doesn't kick in until, like, day 11 with no food. So I know you over, trust me, I, I, yeah, I use it, like, four times a day in my house. I'm starving. Kelly's like, really? You're starving? Right? Day 11, you start starving. You just feel like you are after minute 11. Right? <laughs> but in our city group, like, we get to, to feed. Why do we fast? We fast because we get to feast, Right? Like, like we fast because we actually are leaning into the power of God. We're operating restraint. We're growing in bondage and strongholds in our life are being broken by the power promised to us by operating in restraint. And it's beautiful to do that in community because then you start to hear stories. You start to share testimonies of like, man, I don't even want to sit and watch Netflix. And I'll tell you right now, I'll tell you right now, over sabbatical, I was blown away by the tick. Kids are in bed, you know, grab a, a glass of fermented red grapes. <laughs> And to just go and sit down and press play or grab my controller, whatever to do. And it was amazing when I stopped doing that and I actually like was like, I'm not going to do it. What ended up happening is, like, don't judge me. This is all of you, okay? Like, I'm just going to, I'm going to walk this way, right? Like, and you start doing this. What happens is you actually start to cultivate thoughts and desires that, that I mean, I want to go pick up that book. I want to go and just like, creepily look at my kids while they sleep and pray for them as they sleep in silence. You know what I mean? Like, like it actually does start to cultivate something different in you. Now, I will tell you, we fast so we can feast. When it's time to sit down and check out Ted Lasso, I love that episode more than ever. Right? Like when it's time to actually enjoy that, it's like, this is the best episode I've ever seen. And then you go on, on the internet and it was the worst rated one or whatever. But you enjoyed it that much more because you're not overindulging. Right? 
Okay, that's number one. Number two, fast with a focus. Don't just fast. Don't just fast because I told you to. Don't just fast because Jesus assumes that you're going to, okay? Our why always determines our what. So what area of your life do you lack restraint in? Make that the focus this week. Humble confession. In Psalm 69, 10, King David says, I fasted to humble myself. That's a pretty cool connection. It's like, wow, there's something very humbling about fasting. Because all of a sudden, my thoughts start to get filled with all the ways that I don't actually operate in self-control in my life. That I actually don't have restraint, right? And there's all sorts of reasons in scripture, all sorts of different like focuses um, for, for fasting. Here's a few examples. To strengthen the urgency of prayer. It's a big one, repeated throughout scripture. Ezra and Nehemiah are the best examples of that. They call for a fast because they're praying. So like we're gonna underline these prayers by fasting, okay? That's, that's one. Second, discerning the will of God. Paul and Barnabas do it when they try to identify elders for the church. There's all sorts of other ways that that happens throughout the New Testament where they fast in order to make a decision, right? And some of us are like, I don't know what God's will in my life is. It's like, are you fasting? Because there's a direct connection between how much we're actually operating restraint and understanding God's will for our life. Maybe we should start doing that, right? So there's a direct connection there. There's also a direct connection with fasting and repentance and a return to God. So maybe that's you today. It's just like, I'm really, I'm really convicted by this. And I'm gonna fast this week as a form of repentance. I'm gonna come back to God. Amazing, beautiful. We see lots of examples of that. And we also see fasting as a, a sign of worship. In the New Testament, I think uh, in Luke 2, Anna is worshiping, fasting, and praying. And they're all coupled together. There's a worship and a fasting and a prayer happening, right? And it always results in power, which is a beautiful thing. This is the promise. Uh, Moses' fast led to the delivery of the law at Sinai. I'm glad we have that, amen? Hannah's fast led to one of the most amazing prophets that transformed a nation. Esther's fast led God to deliver them from their real-life enemies. And Jesus' fast allowed him to overcome everything that overpowers us. Praise God for that fast. And last but not least, focus on food, but not only food. Hit pause on anything this week, church, that dulls your heart to the beauty of the gospel. Social media, entertainment, spending money on yourself, getting off Amazon. I know Prime is a beautiful thing. Needing more joggers and hoodies, you probably don't. Buying shoes you don't need because you probably don't. And time on yourself. Like fast from time on yourself. That's the one thing we don't want to actually pay attention to. How much our time and energy revolves around ourselves. Richard Foster, another giant of spiritual formation, said that more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. Oh boy. So this week, expect that. That you'll actually start to see your attachments to things more clearly than ever if you commit to fasting. So that's your homework, okay? That's what we're gonna do as a community. We're actually gonna practice these things because church, I'm telling you right now, I love that I get to get up here and teach you stuff and give you content and, and make you think differently. But if we don't practice what is preached, we will not be different. And we will not transform the culture around us. So this week, pay attention to where your attention goes. Write it down. I promise you it's way scarier than you think. Pro I promise you. Start, start tomorrow. Do five days. Don't even do seven. There's less is more in this case, all right? Do five days this week. Jot down how many hours go to things this week and you will be shocked. Tally them up. Tally up the, the time spent scrolling, consuming, wasting, streaming, watching, and start replacing it 
with prayer, with study, with community, with worship, with silence, for goodness sake. Just be quiet. It's a beautiful thing. Imagine what you and I would look like, how we would start to think differently, how we'd make time for others, what we'd make time for, and what God could accomplish with us as a church if we actually took all of that time and laid it back down at his feet. So our counterformation, our counterformation to this cultural downstream, it must be stronger than the cultural formation. I'll leave you with a story about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Anybody know Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Great German uh, reformer and led a, a resistance force against the Nazis and Hitler. There's a really famous story of him taking leaders up to this mountain where he'd look across all the camps, the Nazi camps. And why he would do that is he would bring them up there and he would say, do you see that? And they'd say, yeah. And he'd say, our formation in the community of God must be stronger than that. We must form our lives stronger than their forming that. And that is wild when we think about it, because church, we're still in this, still in this cultural formation. And if our current use of time and technology and digital content doesn't stoke the fruit of the spirit in our lives, it's likely feeding the flesh. And we need to starve the flesh and cultivate the work of the spirit in our life. So this week, if your current rhythms are not making you more loving, fruit of the spirit stuff, right? More loving, more joyful. Anybody ever just been on the internet enjoying outrage and you leave feeling more joyful? No, of course not. But then we're like, why do I keep scrolling through this nonsense, this toxic garbage heap? And I don't feel better. Weird, right? Self-control, faithfulness, gentleness, generosity, kindness, patience, peace. If your use of time and energy and attention is not cultivating those things, then it's probably feeding the flesh. So this week, let's practice that. Let me pray for us. We're gonna, we're gonna worship again. And then we're gonna enjoy communion in the other way. We're gonna do communion first, then worship again. All right, let me pray. Uh, Spirit, we know that this isn't about our effort because our efforts, is, our efforts are what lead us to these unhealthy cycles and we want to be cultivated from the heart, from within to without by your spirit. I pray for each of us as we go this week to try to be open to you drawing our eyes to these things in our lives, that we really would be a community of people that doesn't just say stuff, and state the doctrines we believe and the theologies we're about, but we actually practice the beautiful call of gospel mission, that you would start with us, with our repentance, with our confession, with our hearts. I'm thankful that we get to do this together, that we, we get to stumble and fumble and, and work through it together. Not perfect because we don't need to perform, but that we work from our acceptance in you already, Jesus. So Spirit, we submit to you. We confess, we repent, we ask that you would just work your power and your transformation in us this week as we go. We ask all these things, the only name that matters or ever will, in Jesus' name, amen.